we're going to um, read from Scripture, and it's Psalm 73. It's one of the most brutally honest pieces of writing in the Scripture. It's a Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. They hold garden parties in time of pandemic and so on. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is God's word. Thank you, John, for leading us so helpfully in the uh, slightly expanded reading of the Bible. There are some times in your life when it feels like you're walking 
upstream. It feels like the wind's in your face. It feels like life is difficult. It feels like friends have become enemies. It feels like the future is uncertain. Sometimes you have days like that, weeks like that, years like that. Sometimes you're faced with temptation that feels overwhelming. There's nothing I can do but to give in. Everyone else is doing it, and so on. It's in those moments that the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray these words. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's a line from the Lord's Prayer that we've been thinking through in the month of January. And there's two parts to that clause in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. That's a, a clause, <coughs> excuse me, that's a clause that's saying, Lord, please help me to deal with the evil that's inside of me. Please cleanse me. Please help me to, to battle and to not give in to the struggles that are within my heart. And there's a second part. Deliver us from evil. When I'm assaulted from stuff on the outside, when there is a headwind, in my life, as well as difficult stuff from within my spirit and heart that I'm trying to deal with, Lord, please help me from within. Please help me from the struggles and uh, those who are against me from without. Now, clearly, when we're talking about temptation and stuff like that, there is the, the overt stuff. There's the overt category where things are abundantly wrong. I thought about that last week when we looked at uh, Psalm 51. David is uh, faced with a temptation to, to sleep with another man's wife, and he gives in to temptation. Adultery is always and forever wrong. It's big stuff. But then there's a whole range of other stuff that's smaller, that's uh, less overt, that's more intimate and personal, more graduated and more gradual. There's a whole category of things like that. And when it's not the big issues of temptation, like fiddling taxes, like uh, sleeping with another person's husband or wife, how do you deal with temptations like that? Psalm uh, 73 is here for occasions just like that. It teaches us to pray when there are issues in our heart that are so overwhelming, whether they be gradual and smaller, or whether they be overwhelming, how do you pray when you're faced with temptations like that? When you're just spiralling downward? When it feels like the temptation is too great for you to stand against? You don't know what to do. It all feels too much. And then you read Psalm 73 that, that's penned by a man called Asaph. Now normally Psalms are written predominantly by David. Yeah, we know who he was. But Asaph, if you turn to the book of 1 and 2 Chronicles, you find this character called Asaph and he is a one of the chief singers, he's a Levite, and he was in charge of temple worship. So he knew his stuff. He knew who God was and is. And he would organise the worship and praise of God for the people of God, for the Israelites. And yet look at how he, uh, look at how he writes. He, he's facing two great big struggles in his life. Here's the first half of the struggle that he's facing that to helps us to understand common temptations. Look at verse 13. Surely, in vain, I've kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence all day long. I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. 
Let's paraphrase. I've been trying to live a really good life. And what good has it done me? Compare and contrast. I've washed my hands. I've lived a good life. I've kept my heart pure. I've tried to keep your laws. And look at the difference it's made. Nothing. I've been absolutely devoted to God on the outside and on the inside. And yet my life is coming apart like a garment. When you understand and when you scratch beneath the surface, you see into his heart, his emotional centre, his CPU, and he's processing how he's living and he's comparing it to the life of other people and he says, living for God is not worth it. Living for God, it doesn't compute. Living for God is too hard. I might as well jack you in and go the way of the world. And so verse 1 is written actually in an ironic tone. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Modern translation for you teenagers, you're right. I've been pure in heart, verse 13, but everything is going wrong. Why is God letting this happen to me? It would be easier at school just to go, not against the flow, but with the flow. That's the first thing that he's adding up and he's saying, it's not worth following you anymore, God. Then look down at verse 3, the other half of the problem. They are linked together. Verse 3, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now if you look in verses 4 to 12, there's a, there's a set of brackets. There's a fancy word which is inclusio. It just means brackets. It begins and ends with the, the phrase relating to the wicked. He's looking at the people around him. He's looking at his friends at school, so to speak, friends at college, friends at university, friends in the workplace, police, people who live and he uh, rubs shoulders with. And this is what he says about them. Their bodies are sleek. Pride and violence is their necklace. They scoff and they speak with malice. These are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. It's clear, isn't it? Here I am trying to live for you, God, and it's not worth it when I compare and contrast with the way of life on my street and in my workplace. Everyone's life is easier than mine. There are people who are corrupt, who are abusive, who are ruthless, who are greedy, and they are having a great life, or at least it looks like they're having a great life. What difference does it make? This is the difference it makes in verse 2. Verse 2 says, My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. That's a pretty serious thing in the Bible. It talks about a physical Losing your footing, often in the Psalms, like uh, Psalm 17, it's a metaphor for spiritually what's going on in your heart. You're tempted to give up, you're tempted to spiritually fall, and that's a replication of what's happening in your heart. You're tempted to jack God in and to follow an easier path. You're losing your grip because, verse 3, I've envied the arrogant. There you are in deepest, darkest Surrey. And you're on one of those muddy paths because the frost has made all the the mud uh, congeal a bit. And you just lose your footing. There you are in ancient Israel and it's a a rocky crag that's dusty and slate underneath your feet. You don't have your morel shoes that you bought from Cotswold Outdoor on. You're barefooted, perhaps you've got sandals on. And you lose your footing so you reach out to grab something for security. But death is a reality on a rocky crag. Here's Asaph and he's saying, when I look at the way of the world and when I look at what it means to me to follow you, 
I almost lost my footing spiritually. And he's talking, verse 3, about envying the arrogant. Envying people that have got it all. The two cars, not the one car. The children in private school, not state school. That sort of thing. And he's envying them. Now, now I have a brother who's very successful in the world of advertising. And really, advertising thrives on envy. It thrives on making you jealous of other people. Your life would be better and easier if you had not that, but this. And it only costs, it always ends in a nine, to make (laughs) it sound less. But the ancients didn't see envy as something to laugh about. Envy is one of the seven deadly sins. It sucks joy from your heart. It sucks the life out of you, literally. Envy makes you self-centred, it makes you cynical, and it makes you self-absorbed. Envy is not something to laugh about. It's deadly. And so verse 3, Asaph says, I want to have the prosperity of the world. I look at their lifestyle and I want it. And I don't want them to have it. I'm jealous of them. And so verse 2, because of that, I almost lost my footing spiritually. I almost lost my relationship with you. He's spiralling down into despair as he looks in the life of those around him to his own. And he's tempted to be cynical. He's tempted to be self-focused rather than God-centred. And can't you hear his heart in verse 1? God, you're supposed to be good to me. You're supposed to be good to the pure in heart. I've been pure and you've not been good to me. Maybe I'll just walk away from you and join them. That's what's happening in his heart. Isn't that what I do and you do? When the wind's against you? When friends are succeeding who don't follow Jesus and you're finding it hard to follow Jesus? There's temptations inside to give up. There's pressures from outside to give in. And how do you get through that, Christian friend? There must be something you can do. The answer is this particular sort of prayer. Here's the key. It's in verse 16 to 17. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood. You may have noticed in the first half of the psalm, before you get to 16, 17, God is, uh, God is referred to as Lord and God. It's not personal in his relationship. Verses 17 and following, you then get the second person. You get you. There's an increase in intimacy, but only after Asaph goes into the sanctuary and God meets with him. God deals with him, and then this intimacy begins to return. To go into the sanctuary is to... It's talking about temple worship for a Jewish person at the time of Asaph and King David as well. It means going, getting on your uh, camel, getting your sandals on, getting dust in your hair and in your face and in your lungs and going, journeying to Jerusalem where God would be met in the temple. It means going to worship in a, in a particular place at a particular time. And Asaph is saying, until I went to the sanctuary, I was confused, I was bitter, I was cynical, but then, when you met with me, then I understood. So this is the prayer that Jesus says, you need to be praying like this when you're facing temptation, when you're facing battle, when the wind is against you, and when your friends are tempting you. There must be a way out. 
when you're facing temptation, and God says there always will be. And this is how you can help yourself most readily and most really, by praying. That's the psalm. Here are four things Asaph teaches us. I'll be quick. Number one, how do you stop losing your footing? Number one, you admit the worst. You need to be prepared to admit the worst. That's in verse 13. This is a remarkable statement. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. When you say you've done something vain in Bible speak, vanity, in in the book of Ecclesiastes it talks about a mist that's passing, like the fog that was there yesterday, something similar to that. But when it talks about vanity, it's an understanding that's given to you by the Spirit of God to understand your motives at a very, very deep personal level. Asaph said, I had a purpose, I had a goal, I had some actions that I wanted to achieve, but then I recognised that actually you thwarted them for my good. What do I mean? Asaph is admitting that he was serving God, but not for God's sake. He wasn't serving God because he loved him, he was serving God because he was using God for something that Asaph himself wanted to do. I was doing it for my sake, not for your sake. I was using you, not worshipping you. I saw you as useful, (laughs) not as beautiful. And that's a huge difference. Surely in vain, verse 13, I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands. I was doing that because I saw something I wanted and I was using you to get it. I wasn't doing this because I figured out all these things and I loved you and I wanted to serve you. I was using you to meet my own ends. But now I can see it's vanity. Everything is done in vain. Friends, I know some of your stories. We all have a story. There's something in your life that happens and it's a heartbreak. There's something in your life that happens. It's a career reversal that's painful. Many of us have experienced significant loss and we're not unfamiliar with pain. And at that moment in your life, this question will come. Here's the question, Christian friend. Now we'll know whether you got into the Christian faith because you loved God or because you wanted to use God. A very pertinent question for all of us to think about. Asaph is saying, I tried to live a good life. I was trying to do something good but I was using you for my ends. Now I see it's vanity. Why are you letting this happen to me? Do you know why you're so upset? Asaph can see with a moment of great spiritual reflection because the Holy Spirit is working on his own heart and person and spirit. The reason I was living this good life, says Asaph, because I thought it would pay off for me, but it's not paying off. And because of that, I almost lost my footing. Later on he says, but you held on to me. Asaph realises he's never going to get out of this hole until he realises the deep condition that he's facing. He's not afraid to admit the worst. God is not beautiful for him at the beginning. God is useful. Are you able to admit the worst? Are you able to confess? So often we're mercenary when we come to God for prayer. God, we don't want you, we want what you can give to us. And you admit the worst. The first 
point of getting out of the hole that Asaph finds himself in, and sometimes I do and you will too. Secondly, he sees the whole. He sees the whole picture. He's in deep trouble until verse 16 and 17, which is the key and the crux and the pivot of the psalm. He says, Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. His Asaph, and he's talking about the destiny of the arrogant. He's talking about the destiny, the final destiny of the people who he's very envious of. I want what they have and I'd do anything to get it. Jealousy is saying, I want what you've got. Envy is saying, I want what you've got and if you don't give it to me, I'll take it from you. Or I'll stamp on your toys. If, you, if I can't have it, then no one can have it. That's what happened in my life when Darren Bagg, age 12, said to me, having failed my maths test, that I couldn't play cricket and so I punched him in the face. <laughs> I then became a maths teacher. Oh, the irony. <laughs> Um, here is Asaph, he's talking about the wicked, I was envious of what they had, I was envious of their lives and, and the smiles upon their faces, their sleek figure, he was so upset that he was full of self-pity. Then in the sanctuary, in the worship of God and the worship with the people of God, I understood their final destiny. You've placed them on slippery ground, notice how that's written, you cast them down into ruin, how suddenly they're destroyed. They're like a dream when one awakes, down to verse 24. But afterward, you will take me into glory. I saw their destiny, and rather than envying them, I then pitied them. Because I saw my destiny, which is safe in your hands. Because Asaph went to the sanctuary, he saw the big picture. Now, when you're out in Surrey, perhaps you're down at Leaf Hill, you're down by Cold Harbour, somewhere like that, and Google, in its own mysterious ways, is not working. And uh, the map which you had in your back pocket for every other walk is no longer there. You're lost, and you're responsible for your loved one or whoever you're walking with, your family, perhaps. At that point, all you can see above you is the canopy of leaves. What are you going to do? Well, you know if you go to the top and you just do the hard yards of going uphill, you'll get to a high point, right? And when you get to the high point, then and only then will you be able to reorient yourself and maybe find your way back to the car. Maybe you'll get a signal and maybe Google can help you in a way that you can't help yourself. We've all been like that. You need to see the whole because you're lost. And life does that to us, not just trees. Busyness can overwhelm us. People can tug at the, the hem of our genes when they're small and you have pressures of life at different stages. And we need to climb up to the top and see what's really true and what really matters. Friends, prayer, prayer is the only way for you to get clarity on your life. Prayer helps you see and get to the high place. Prayer and only prayer always helps you to see the big picture because it takes you to the sanctuary. It stops you getting consumed by the trees and the busyness and the pressures and the appropriate sometimes demands of life. But prayer resets and prayer takes you to the high point and there's no higher point than the presence of God. And then Asaph sees real wealth. He sees what really matters. He sees what will really last. 
Look at verse 20. It's like a dream. When you awake, they are despised like fantasies. Now look, I found this picture and this reality very difficult. When I go to sleep, that's the last thing that happens to me until the morning. But apparently people dream when you sleep. And apparently when you dream, they can be really, really vivid. I I go straight into REM, one of those weird people. Either the Lord Jesus with a trumpet will wake me up or my wife will with an elbow. That's it. But here is the reality that Asaph is saying. This reality, this world in which I've existed, where I'm envious, when I'm tempted to let go of God, as he always is hold of me, but I'm tempted to join myself to the wicked. And actually, it's just like waking up from a dream. Verse 20. When you awake, you get a perspective. Now we go from Leith Hill to waking up from a dream. And we're having a vivid dream and we're sweating because someone's after us. And then you sit up, bolt upright. And then you realise it was just a dream. Here's Asaph and he's saying, all the power and all the wealth and all the beauty that is in the world, actually it's just a mirage. And when I go to the sanctuary, it's like waking up from a dream and I see it for what it is. There is wealth. There is joy. There's real pleasures to be had in this world but they are not lasting, they are not permanent, they are not eternal. They are not worth my soul, says Asaph. All power, all wealth is just like a dream. And only what you do for God will last. Do you realise, friends, how this could change us if we saw it? If we spent more time seeking God's face? Fear anxiety that grip us in a whole host of ways could be dealt with. Freedom from anger, freedom from envy. The only place you will be released from fear and anxiety is by seeking God in the sanctuary. That's not in Jerusalem. That's in worship, it's in prayer. It's in listening to God's voice through his word. It's with getting together with someone else who can encourage you and seeking God's face. It's by common grace of the Lord's Supper. It's in these aspects of worship that your heart is softened and your perspective is restored. The tree leaves are removed and you see clearly what is of eternal value and how rich you are in Christ. Otherwise you'll get lost under the trees. Asaph also grasps God's grace. Look at verse 21 to 24. When my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. This is an extension in verse 21 to 24 of verse 13. It's a moment of great personal awareness for Asaph. It takes no energy from me to be selfish. It takes no effort from me to think about what I need, not what you need. But love is being other-centred. Love is being committed to other people, sacrificing my needs for yours. But selfishness is just, just a bass heartbeat of my life. It's like the bass drum in a band. It's a bass note. It happens naturally. And in that sense, I'm just like a beast. So are you. So is Asaph. I now realise I've been like that, and yet, that precious word that begins verse 23, and yet, although I'm like that, Selfish, self-centred. You have been holding me by the right hand all this time and you'll never let go. This is God's grace. 
even with all the struggles that he's facing with the temptation to let go of God, God is saying, I will never, ever let go of you. In a Christian, a definition of a Christian is someone who has a great capacity, just as John helpfully explained at the start of the service, for superiority, for pride. I would never do that. I'm better than you because I haven't done that. You have a great propensity for selfishness and for pride. But in spite of all of this, the gospel humbles us. It says, actually, they may have their name on the front of the newspaper, but I could have my name there. I'm no better than they are. And Asaph sees God's grace and his undeserved mercy. Now you may wonder, how has that happened? How does he know this? I think because he's gone to the sanctuary. And in the sanctuary he would have been uh, reset, as it were, by hearing the praise of God's people and by hearing and sensing the praise of God that he would never let him go. But then he also would have seen this bloody altar in the centre of the sanctuary. Perhaps he saw, or at least he knew something of that, Asaph. He might not have understood it completely, but he knew what it pointed to, our great need for someone to go before us, someone to sacrifice himself for us. When Jesus walked the earth, he said these remarkable words, because we don't need to go to Jerusalem anymore. Jesus was throwing out the money changers, people that had made a mockery of the temple of God, and of the worship of God. And his critics came to him and said, how dare you do that? How dare you uh, overthrow the marketplace that the temple of God has become? And what did Jesus say? Tear down this building, and I'll build it back up again in three days. He's talking about his body, not about the bricks and mortar. David went to the sanctuary. How are we to do that? We don't have to go to a specific place at a specific time with stained glass windows or none. But we can come to God in prayer. Not just praying in a general way. We come to God and we come into God's presence in a very particular way. By praying in Jesus' name. Father, accept me because of what Jesus did on the cross. And as you pray that prayer, you'll be grasping God's grace just as Asaph did. Finally, quickly. When you do that, to the degree you do that, the affections of your heart and the loves of your heart will be reordered. Look at verse 13 and 14 again. He's recognising all these things on the earth that he would rather have than God. I want those things. I'm envying the people, verse 4 to 12. And then verse 25, after he's been to the sanctuary, in verse 16 and 17, after he's seen and sensed God's grace, how does he respond? Verse 25. Whom am I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire beside you. If you love anything more than God, it will enslave you. It will be a cruel taskmaster for you. You'll end up being a workaholic. You'll end up being down all the time and up some of the time. You'll be emotionally tied to whatever it is that has the love and chief aim of your heart. You'll be a slave to uncontrollable fears and phantoms of the night. And anger will be a reality of your character because you're afraid. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing I love in heaven and on earth more than you. I love you most of all. 
Friends, in the gospel, God's love is the only love that will never fail you. God's love is the only love that gets better when you die. God's love is the only love that will get you to a place where you can look out on life and say, bad things are happening to me, but my foot will not slip. And when Asaph saw God's love, when he sensed God's presence, it reordered his heart's affections, and he put God first. And he said, who have I in heaven but you? And what has this earth got? There's nothing I desire on this earth besides you. He saw God's grace and it reordered his heart's affections. And when we do that, by looking at the cross, we can say something like this. If you've done this for me, then there's nothing in heaven or on earth that I love more than you. And when you say something like that, there's nothing that can cast you down. Let's pray.